listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinclair. Our scripture this morning comes from Luke 14, 25 through 33. And at this time, people were following in great crowds. And so... Jesus says to them, it's wonderful to have you, but do you understand what following is about? And that's not what I get to explain. That's what Pastor Dave gets to explain. And I'm glad for that. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down and first deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This ends the reading of scripture. Thank you, Raymond. How many of you would consider yourselves to be very careful readers of the fine print. Like maybe you're a bit of a skeptic, so you're kind of always looking for, how is this thing too good to be true? Or what's the catch here? Like what's, what's really going on here? I'm kind of that way. And I said last week, you know, when we looked at Jesus having this wonderful invitation to this great party that he's throwing at the end of time, I said last week, look, The invitation doesn't cost you anything. It's free. All you have to do 
is receive it with joy. Some of you might have been saying, okay, Pastor Dave, what's the catch? What's the, what's the fine print there? How in the world is this a free gift that Jesus is throwing this great party and, and, and we can just come for free? Well, what I love about Jesus is that he puts the fine print in bold print. No worries, Scott. <laughs> I had that happen once in a class. It's awful. Jesus, what I love about Jesus is he puts the fine print in bold print. He puts it in font 900 so that nobody can miss it. He doesn't try to hide anything from us. Right after that passage that we looked at last week where he's talking to us about this great party that he's inviting us to, he comes to this great crowd and he tells them what it will cost them to be his disciples. And this is where Christianity is a bit tricky, right? Because here's the big idea today. Salvation is free. Discipleship is costly. You might have wrestled with this before, right? Like, which one is it? Is it free or is it costly? Salvation in Christianity is free. Discipleship is costly. Salvation is a free gift. We receive it by grace through faith. Grace just means gift. So we, we grab hold of that gift by faith. We say, I trust you, Jesus, that you're giving me that, that gift of salvation. We, we realize it's not our works that save us. It's Jesus' works that save us. We couldn't do anything to save ourselves. God had to come and do that work for us. And we advertise this as the church all the time. Salvation's free. Come receive God's free gift of salvation. But perhaps the church has erred by not telling as clearly the second part of that truth, right? Which is what Jesus tells us so clearly right here. Accepting that free gift of salvation means signing up to follow Jesus, which is actually incredibly costly. Many of you have been following Jesus for many years. You know that it's, it's true. It's incredibly costly. In our context here, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and a cross, but this great crowd that's following him thinks that he's on his way to Jerusalem and a crown. They think he's the Messiah. They think Jesus is coming to overthrow the Romans. He's going to liberate Israel. He's going to do all the things that they thought the Messiah was going to do. They think Jesus is the big winner. And so they're like, if I'm on his coattails, if I'm following him, I'm going to be a winner too. And so Jesus stops them, teaches them that discipleship carries a high price tag. Those who aspire to follow him should count the cost before signing on the dotted line. And see, friends, Jesus is not just selling fire insurance. Right? He's not just saying, hey, if, if you don't want to go to hell, just pray this prayer, and then you're good to go for the rest of your life. Like, we don't have that anywhere in the Gospels. Jesus is inviting people to be his disciples. And so receiving Christ's free gift of salvation means signing up to follow him. It's the first step in discipleship, which is very costly. It's kind of like this. Um, if someone gave you a gift and it happened to be a boat. That would be an awesome gift, right? You'd be like, wow, a free boat. That's amazing. But for those of us who have owned boats before, you also know that's a costly gift, right? Because boats, they're always breaking down. There's always something to be fixing on them. They're very, very expensive, not just to run them, but to keep them in working order. If you want to keep that boat in working order, it's going to cost you a lot. So was it a gift? Yes. Is it a costly gift? Yes. There's a couple of funny statements about boats um, that I learned once I got a boat. And a lot of my friends said, yeah, the two best days of boat ownership, the day you buy it, the day you sell it. 
That's because it's so costly. Um, some of my other friends say a boat is a hole in the water that you throw money into. It's because it's really costly. Christianity is a lot like that. Jesus gives you salvation as a gift, but receiving that free gift means an entirely different life for you because you're signing up to follow him. It means now your life belongs to him, which is going to mean some significant costs. It's going to be terribly expensive. How expensive, you might ask? Well, we're going to look at it here in the passage today. Jesus puts it as plainly as he possibly could. The cost of discipleship or following Jesus is your entire life. That's the cost. Jesus breaks it down into three massive statements that are actually pretty terrifying. Three things we must do if we're going to follow him. we got to hate our family. I know, I'm popular, right? Hate your family, take up your cross, and count the cost. Jesus is no PR specialist. Hate your family, take up your cross, and count the cost. Let's look at it together. First of all, you got to hate your family. Oh, how unpopular. He says in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And back in Jesus' day, even more so than now, family was everything. Like Family was everything. If you didn't have family, you were pretty much bound to be poor. Family was your future. Family was your inheritance. It was your security. And Jesus says, whoever doesn't hate his family can't be my disciple. What in the world is going on here? Now, we have to understand this word hate a little bit. It's not a bad translation there in the ESV. It just has a large semantic range. It can mean several different things. And according to Gingrich's Greek lexicon, this word is an example of a Hebraism, which means um, to, strong, to prefer more than or, or to prefer less or to love less. So he's saying you need to prefer your family less or love them less if you're going to be my disciple. It also means to require single-minded loyalty and discipleship. So what that word really means is if your love for your family or your love for even your own life, Jesus says. Of course, Jesus isn't telling us actually to hate them. He's told us to love everyone, including our enemies. So what he's saying is if your love for them does not pale in comparison to your love for me, you can't be my disciple. If your love for me, if you don't prefer me over literally everyone in your life, you can't be my disciple. I like how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message translation. He says, simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. Without question, there are many thousands of Christians who have had to pay this price for discipleship, for following Jesus, this price of preferring Christ over family. Um, I've spoken with some Christians who converted from Islam, and in nearly every case, their families totally disowned them when they converted, right? Some of them even threatened to kill them because it it, that was such a, like, you don't do that. You don't, you don't leave your family's faith. They know what Jesus is talking about here firsthand. I've also encountered marriages where one spouse, you know, they got married and they were both Christians, but along the way, one spouse says, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. I'm done with this. Well, what then? Those people get what Jesus means here at a different level. Some of you have children or siblings or parents who are not Christians. You know how isolating it can be to follow the Lord Jesus. Like, he doesn't have any problem saying it. This could cost you relationships with your entire family. And I think it's important for us to remember that when Jesus says this, 
he's not just being hard, but he's also provided for you in the midst of that. Like, um, throughout the scriptures, Jesus teaches us that our first family really ought to be the church. That the most important relationships in your life, now that you're a Christian, are not those relationships that you receive through human blood, but through Jesus' blood. Like, you're related to all these people that you see in here by Jesus' blood. And so Jesus isn't saying, now you got to live without family. He's saying, your first family is the church. It's the body of Christ. It's the people that I've provided for you. And if, you've, if you find yourself like a fish swimming upstream in your biological family, if you find yourself as a lone ranger there, take heart. Jesus gets it. He knew that this could be part of the cost, and he's provided for you along the way. But nonetheless, that's the first big requirement of discipleship is hate your family or prefer them less than Jesus. That's not all. Jesus goes on to say, you got to take up your cross. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So all of a sudden, Jesus is talking about real death here. You know, the Romans had invented crucifixion. And so everybody that Jesus is talking to here knew what he was talking about and probably had an image in their mind. Right? Crucifixion was a horrific kind of death. These people had probably witnessed crucifixions. Uh, the Romans were famous for squashing rebellions, and they would crucify people along roadsides for miles at eye level so other people could walk by and see, this is what Rome does to people that try to rebel. Like, it would be a vivid, traumatic imagery in these people's minds. And that's different for us today, right? When we hear, take up your cross, I mean, the cross for us is a sign of faith. It's a sign of hope. It's even a sign of comfort to us. But keep in mind, Jesus said this before his death and resurrection. So the cross to these people was nothing but a picture of torture and execution. It was the most unpleasant imagery that Jesus could have possibly used here for, to describe discipleship. It's hard to find a modern comparison. But I think it's important to realize, like, hey, Jesus doesn't just say, all right, you guys, strap on your hiking boots. We're going for a pretty hard hike, and it's going to be kind of rough, but you're going to get to the top, and you're going to be a little worn out, but it's going to be all right. You're going to make it. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't use difficult imagery. He uses the imagery of actual death. He calls us to death itself. That's just the only way we can see this here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German theologian, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, highlights this again and again. He says this, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man and woman must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. As we embark, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man or woman, he bids them come and die. He bids them come and die. And this is what we talk about when we baptize you, right? Here at Life Church, we baptize um, by immersion. And what we love about that is the symbolism of being united with Christ in his death. So we say, look, when you go under the water, the water represents death. And so you're united with Christ in his death, buried with Christ. The old you dies, right? And the new you comes up out of the water. You're united with Christ in his resurrection, and therefore you're raised with him to live a new life in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
But you realize that happens at the beginning, like Bonhoeffer says. The very beginning of your life, of your call to follow Christ, is a call to come and die. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his masterpiece, Mere Christianity, it talks about um, some of these major themes. And he's, he's wrestling in one chapter with, is Christianity easy or hard? Which might be another qu- question you've wrestled with. And there's going to be a lot of Lewis quotes today. Sorry. It's just, I thought maybe I should just read the whole chapter. But um, no, there, there are going to be some longer quotes. But he says this, the Christian way is different. Harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. So see, friends, this is really what sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. Every other world religion is trying for self-improvement, enlightenment, betterment. You're getting better as you follow these paths, as you adhere to these core values. Christianity says, no, this is not self-improvement. This is self-death. You die so that Christ lives through you. It's Galatians 2.20, right? I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. The life I live in the body, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So like Lewis is saying, it's harder in that you got to die, but it's easier in that you could never do all this stuff in your own power and your own strength. God has to do that through you. Stanley Hauerwas, the Duke theologian, said, Christians know that Christianity is simply extended training in dying early. That is what we've always been about. Extended training in dying early. This is not popular stuff. I get it. But this is the truth. This is what Jesus tells us about here. And so for some of us, when Jesus says, take up your cross, that's going to mean actual death. And it has for millions of Christians throughout the millennia, right? They actually died for their faith in Christ. But for every single one of us, and I think this is Jesus' larger meaning here, for all of us, it means the death to ourselves, to our desires, to our agendas, our hopes, and our dreams for our lives. It means the complete and total surrender of all that. And it means complete and total transformation into all that God has for us, becoming like Christ. That's the reason that it's painful after all, right? You are, in fact, dying. So you should expect that as you go along in your Christian journey, there's going to be significant pain as you die. But it's worth it. And I love how C.S. Lewis um, gives us this picture here that helps me to remember how God is going about doing this. He compares God to a dentist. Kids, how many of you like going to the dentist? A couple of you do. Praise God, you know, some of you do. But dentists throughout the centuries have not been, especially before there were really good pain drugs, they were not things that people looked forward to. So listen to C.S. Lewis talking about his childhood. He, He compares God to a dentist here. He says, when I was a child, I often had a toothache. And I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for the night and let me get to sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least not until the pain became very bad. And the reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt she would give me the aspirin, but I knew she would do something else. I knew she would take me to the dentist next morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from the pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. 
And I knew those dentists. I knew they started fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth which had not yet begun to ache. They would not let sleeping dogs lie. If you gave them an inch, they took an L. An L is a little bit longer than a yard. Now, if I may put it that way, our Lord is like the dentist. If you give him an inch, he will take an L. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of some particular sin which they're ashamed of, like masturbation or physical cowardice, or which is obviously spoiling daily life, like bad temper or drunkenness. Well, he will cure it all right, but he will not stop there. That may be all you asked, but if once you call him in, he will give you the full treatment. That is why he warned people to count the cost before becoming Christians. Make no mistake, he says, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hand, that is what you are in for, and nothing less or other than that. You have free will, and if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand that I am going to see this job through. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable conceivable purification it may cost you after death, whatever it costs me, I will never rest nor let you rest until you are literally perfect. Until my father can say without reservation that he is well pleased with you, as he said he was well pleased with me. This I can do and will do, but I will not do anything less. Oh, that's awesome, isn't it? And yet, it's not that awesome right? It's really fantastic to think about that, like God is intent and on making us perfect like Jesus. But what's the problem with that? We don't really want to be, right? The problem is we don't really want the full treatment. We just like Lewis, we just want that one tooth that's aching. Take care of that one. Give us some, 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 some medication to deaden the pain. We don't really want the full treatment. And Lewis goes on to talk about that. He says, I think that many of us, when Christ has enabled us to overcome one or two sins that were an obvious nuisance, are inclined to feel, though we don't put it into words, that we're now good enough. He has done all we wanted him to do, and we should be obliged if he would now leave us alone. As we say, I never expected to be a saint. I only wanted to be an or- a decent, ordinary chap. And we imagine when we say this, we're being humble, but this is the fatal mistake. Of course, we never wanted and never asked to be made into the sort of creatures he's going to make us into. But the question is not what we intended ourselves to be, but what he intended us to be when he made us. He is the inventor, we're only the machine. He is the painter, we're only the picture. How should we know what he means for us to be like? That's a great question for you to ask yourself. Like, all of us have in our minds an idea of what we would like to become. But did you know God's idea for you is infinitely better and greater of what he envisions you to be? Like, you're falling, your idea for yourself is so far short of where God intends to get you. I love how our text from Jeremiah says this, that God is in control of this. He says in Jeremiah 18, 6, Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done, says the Lord, just like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. So when Jesus comes to us and says, this is going to be the death of you, when he says, take up your cross and follow me, yeah, that, that's really difficult to hear, but you have to understand he means it for your own good. He means to make you into something so beautiful, so radiant, that if you could see yourself now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship yourself. An incredible, incredible being. So the suffering, the, the, the dying to yourself, it's not a, an arbitrary cost. It's not a meaningless cost. It's a cost that has a real purpose. You're dying so that you can become 
the creature like Christ that God meant for you to be. Lewis closes this chapter by saying this, If we let him, for we can prevent him, if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. He meant what he said. That's what you're in for. That's the cost of following Jesus. You have to give up your whole life because you have to die so that Christ can live through you, so you can be transformed into the radiant creature that God means for you to be. But that's a cost worth paying, isn't it? Jesus says that we need to hate our family, which means prefer him above all else. He says we need to take up our cross, but then finally he says you need to count the cost here. You need to count the cost. Jesus uses two metaphors here, one of construction and one of going to war. And if you've been following the war in Ukraine, you know wars are like one of the most expensive things on planet Earth. They just, they're super, super costly. Um, with lives, but also financially, awful, awful things. But I think the construction metaphor is probably um, more apt for most of us in here because we've done those kinds of things before. But the point of both of the metaphors is the same. It says, look, you don't want to get into a project. You don't want to tackle something and then not have the, the wherewithal or the resources to finish it, to actually see it through. What you want to do is you want to accurately assess the cost up front and then steal yourself, ready yourself to be able to pay the cost. Um, how many of you have done a significant remodel on a home before? Yeah, yeah, most of us have, right? Um, you know, if you've done a significant remodel, that every project costs more than you think. Why is that? I mean, it just happens. It's weird how that happens. And even now, uh, contractors have started doing this. They say, okay, this is the bid, but you should factor in about 10% more than what we're saying for unexpected expenses. Expect the unexpected, right? Because every project turns into two or three more projects. If you watch HGTV, you find like, oh, they tear the wall off and there's bugs in there or something like that. You know, and then that's going to cost a whole bunch more than you thought. Well, nothing worse than getting your whole house torn apart and then realizing, oh, no, this is going to cost a lot more. We don't have enough money to finish this project and to, to put everything back together. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, look, take your time. Consider what I'm saying to you. I'm not trying to hide this from you. This is going to be difficult. Following me is going to be challenging, and it's going to cost you everything, and you need to, you need to consider whether you can pay the price. You need to consider and be prepared to see it through. And as we read the Gospels, we realize, like, Jesus didn't just tell us about this here. Every parable he tells us about receiving the kingdom is a costly parable, right? Um, Bonhoeffer calls this what Jesus describes so repeatedly in the Gospels, costly grace, which kind of seems like a contradiction at first, right, when you say costly grace, because grace just means gift. So how can you have a costly gift? Isn't a gift something that's supposed to be free? How can you have a costly gift? Well, again, it's kind of like that boat idea, right? You can have something that's, that's both a gift given free, but then there's a cost to, to doing it, to keeping it up and, and, and things like that. Listen how Bonhoeffer describes costly grace. He says, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all he has. You remember that parable? It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. Remember that one? Jesus told that one too. 
It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. You know, and I feel like this might be one of the things that's missing from our evangelism efforts these days. You know, um, a lot of times when um, I've shared the gospel with people, I feel myself wanting to kind of go around this part, you know. But Jesus never does that. Understand, when he invites people to follow him, he never sugarcoats it. He never feels like he has to put things in fine print. He never tries to entice people. In fact, when I read Jesus talking to people, I'm like, is he trying to talk people out of it? Because that's what it seems like to me. Like, he's like the worst salesman ever. He's, he's clearly, he's just going right after it. Like, he's not hiding anything. He's, he's just saying, this is going to be incredibly costly. And I think that's why he's telling us up front. He's saying, consider the cost. Make sure you're willing to part with absolutely anything in this life if it comes between following me and that thing. This is how Jesus basically sums up the whole passage. He says, in case we missed it, in one last devastating blow, look at verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Tough stuff, isn't it? I'm sure this was hard for the crowds to hear, especially their expectations of Jesus as they were growing. This would have been really disappointing. But one benefit that we have over the crowds of that day is that we've seen Jesus model what he's talking about here, right? Before he calls us to pay a, a costly price for discipleship, we see Jesus paying the cost for us. He never calls us to do something that he isn't willing to do first himself, I love how Bonhoeffer puts this in his book. He says this, Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin, and it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. You understand that, right? Above all, it's grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. You guys get that? Do you understand that? Our Jesus is this costly gift, this costly gift that God gave for us who then calls us into a costly discipleship. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're just not going to sugarcoat it like Jesus does here. We're, we're going to say exactly what Jesus says and say, come, receive this costly gift Jesus has done everything that you cannot. He has died and risen again so that you can be saved. Come and receive him. It's free today. And it will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. There's going to be people up here to pray with you. If that's you today, I would urge you to come. But I would urge you to do exactly what Jesus calls you to do to consider the cost as well. For the rest of us today who are Christians, you know, I don't know where this message finds you, but maybe you're here today and your life in discipleship has gotten tough. And maybe you came into the faith in a stream of Christianity where they kind of sold it like, 
without a lot of these words of Jesus, right? Maybe, maybe you came into Christianity under like the health and wellness kind of preaching and like, I don't know how you ended up here, but you know, you, you, you came in and you heard like, this is going to go great for you and you're going to love this and, and God's going to bless your life and he's going to give you all these kinds of good things. I'll, part of that is true. But you need to remember the other side of the message. And maybe your life has gotten challenging and hard as a disciple of Jesus. I just want you to know that's normal. That's okay. Maybe you're really battling a sin struggle. That's all right. You're, you're not, you're, you're dying. It's going to be painful. You're becoming that radiant, amazing creature that God meant for you to be like Christ. All right? But really what I want to do as we close here. For those of us who are believers, I just want to make sure that we're paying attention to the Holy Spirit. Because I think sometimes we can lose sight of this and say, and maybe, maybe after a while we're not really counting the cost of what it means to be a disciple. And I don't know what the Holy Spirit wants to say to you, but I would love to give us a moment as the worship team is going to come back up. I just want to give us a moment of silence to meet with the Holy Spirit and say, have I really counted the cost? Am I really willing to pay the ultimate price to see this through to be a disciple of Jesus? Or there's certain things in my life that are like protected from God. Like you can have this stuff. You can't have this. I don't want the full treatment. What are those things? Let's go to the Lord. Let's ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, will you just speak to me now about my discipleship? And will you make me ready for a costly discipleship? Amen. Let's pray.